IBEC, the voice of Irish business. And you are very welcome back to IBEC Voices, an original podcast series from IBEC about the people and priorities behind Irish business and the global climate that shapes it. I'm Patrick Hawhey, and in this episode, we have a very special guest talking about an issue that I think is top of mind for all of us right now. And to introduce him, I am joined as ever by Siobhan Masterson, Head of Corporate Affairs at IBEC. Hiya, Siobhan. Hi, Patrick. How are you? I'm keeping well. I'm looking forward to this interview because this is a particularly interesting guest and a little bit of a different episode than we have had in the series to date. It is, yeah. And I guess in the context of where Ireland finds itself today, and of course much of the Northern Hemisphere after 10 months into this pandemic, this episode is trying to examine strategies um, that we've adopted to date in our fight against covid and to try to look at alternative ways in which we can crush the virus and, and try to restore greater social and economic activity while we wait this max vaccination programme to take effect. So I guess it's to try and bring you insights and thinking um, to find a way out. So my guest for this discussion is a guy called Yanir Bar-Yam. And Yanir is president of New England Systems Institute. And his work has, you know, concerns pandemics generally, and he's, a, he's got a huge track record in contributing to response protocols for, for pandemics. But crucially, he is MIT trained. He's a physicist and a complexity scientist. So as opposed to a lot of the health uh, insights we're getting at the moment, he comes from a different perspective. And he's been following Ireland's experience with, with the COVID pandemic and commenting on it since the beginning. Um, and has a lot of views in terms of our response, uh, both from a stakeholder perspective, but also from a government perspective. He is founder of endcoronavirus.org, which is a movement to try to eliminate COVID. So a really interesting guest, Yanir Baryam, and as you say, an, a phenomenal track record, which I know he gets to pretty early in the interview. So look, I'm really looking forward to the conversation. So Siobhan, look, let's catch up after. Maybe we'll have a little bit of a chat about um, some of what Yanir covered and how it applies to Ireland and I guess particularly in a business context as well. So enjoy the interview. Let's get to the conversation. Great. Thanks, Patrick. IBEC, the voice of Irish business. You're very welcome, Yanir. Thank you very much for joining us from Boston Thank today. You. Thank you very much. Um, so we have a lot of moving parts at the moment in Ireland, um, to use an overused phrase. Um, but today we've just seen uh, new announcements around restrictions being extended now until March. Um, and we're in the process of gathering insights from all around the world on what the best strategy is around COVID, like every other country. So it's an absolute pleasure to have you as our guest today. And we're very, very interested in in your views on it. But maybe to begin, could you give us a little bit of context around your work, um, what the Institute does, and maybe the kind of collective movement that you're trying to put some momentum behind around advocacy on COVID? Yeah, so I've been working on pandemics for 15 years. And I was very involved at a policy level in the outbreak of Ebola in West Africa, advising U.S. government and the U.N. And I was involved in the community level efforts in Liberia. And then I also was involved in the Congo, uh, uh, the DRC, where there were several Ebola outbreaks. And I've been involved in the uh, coronavirus pandemic 
since January of last year, unfortunately. Um, and um, my background is as a physicist, uh, I am working on modeling and understanding the um, dynamics and behavior of outbreaks. But I'm a complexity scientist, which means that the tools that I particularly use are geared at understanding, if you will, the control variables, the most important things that we have to control about an outbreak. It's in business, it's like knowing what's important, right? If you know what to focus your attention on, then you can be much more successful than if there is a lot of information and you don't know which piece of a picture or a system or a condition to think about. Um, it's very hard to make decisions when you don't know what matters and doesn't matter. So the science that I do is focused on, first of all, identifying what are the most important things to worry about, to focus your attention on, and then using those to figure out what is the strategy for success. So it's less about prediction, which much of science focuses on, and more about how do we act and how do we achieve the results that we want. And, and the reason why I became involved in pandemics is that the work that I did showed that the world was entering into a new domain of risk, global risk, in the face of pandemics. And the experience that we've seen with Ebola and with uh, the coronavirus with the, this pandemic are, are, the res, are the results of changing conditions in the world with global transportation leading to fundamentally shifted conditions of risk. And the work that I've been doing has been to try to understand that risk and what we can do to overcome the challenges of pandemics in this context. So what can we do? <laughs> Which is the question everybody wants an answer to. And, and the answer in my language is that we have to actually shift from thinking about individuals as being sick to thinking about communities as being sick. And just as when individuals are sick, what we do is we prevent transmission between individuals. When we think of communities as being sick, we also have to think about prevention of transmission between communities. And once we think about that, it shifts our strategy and our thinking. Because what we do is we do two things. One, one is where there is a community that has the disease, we act swiftly to take care of the transmission so that it stops. And we also, at the same time, prevent the disease from going to community to community so that those communities that don't have the disease can enjoy the benefits of not being sick. It's like if you're sick, you have to be careful. You have to stay at home. You have to get well. But if you're not sick, well, then you can go out and party. We want that. But now we want to do that at a community level. And so understanding that as a strategy and explaining that as a strategy is what I've been doing for many years. In the context of the coronavirus, that has specific implications for how we respond. And it's also important to know that the strategy that I described is not new. It is, in fact, as old as we know in history. 
and it, it is the method that has been used in multiple countries to be successful, including in China and in Australia and New Zealand and Taiwan and Vietnam, Mongolia, and also the eastern part of Canada called Atlantic Canada. So really the point is the following. We have a tremendous amount of evidence, direct evidence in the world. We have the, the interesting thing about the examples that I've given you is that they're widely different. Small countries, large countries, westernized countries, eastern countries, um, island countries, main, you know, countries that are part of the mainland, huge countries, right? And small countries. It's, it shows that it's really not about particular properties of the country, which is super important because everybody thinks they're unique. Uh, but it is, and, and everybody does face unique challenges, which is always true. But overcoming those challenges becomes a matter of detail, not a matter of principle. So the strategy becomes a universal strategy. The implementation and the way to get there has to always be customized. So it's a custom build solution, but the customization starts with a framework that is just universal. So, so okay. that's the, the strategy that I've been uh, uh, recommending. Now, at the beginning of the outbreak, I made a general statement that we could be much better off if we immediately controlled the outbreak and did not allow it to get to the rest of the world. And there is a vision for some reason, which I'll explain. I think it's one of the things that we should talk about of why people didn't understand this, but there is a vision of fatalism, of we can't do this, it's impossible for us to solve the problem, and we surely can't do the things that are necessary because they're so extraordinary, right? They're not the normal things that we want to do. But one of the things that we've learned that's super important is that a pandemic changes life. And Early on in the pandemic, I said, if we allowed this pandemic to get outside of the limited area that it started, that it would change everybody's lives in the world. I don't think that I, even at that time, didn't feel that that was an amazingly extreme statement to make, but to all intents and purposes, it has been realized. So we have this tremendous challenge and it requires extraordinary actions in order for us to get to the goal that we want to get. But the important thing to know is that they're achievable. Yeah, They've been yeah. achievable. Many countries have achieved them. We have plenty of examples. And we also have an understanding, the really the fundamental understanding of how they can be successful and why they're successful. Mm -hmm. And that enables us to adapt them. So we don't have to use exactly the same thing that was done in one place. As long as we follow the principles, we can apply it in other places. And that's sure. a tremendous advantage. So going back to what I've been doing, starting in January, I said, let's prevent it from getting everywhere else. Once it didn't happen at the end of February, I invited many people to participate in the effort of doing all kinds of actions that would be necessary, including communications which is a super important part of everything that has to be done. Because after all, the action 
is ultimately being done by members of the community. It is not a government action, it's not a medical action, it's not an institutional action. It is involving, and this is clear from everything that we know since then, it's mostly about the community action. And in fact, that's the insight that my science tells us, that if you think about it, if the community is the thing that has to deal with the disease, then it is the members of the community that have to make the choice to act and ultimately to act. So, and and communications is something that I'm really interested in. I think it's going to form a big part of the next phase of COVID for Ireland and how we how we deal with communications. And we might come back in a few minutes and look at that in more detail. But maybe just to go back to the strategy and you talk about a really kind of granular, localized, individualist approach to taking control of the virus. But now we find it rampant, you know, nationally, uh, well, locally, nationally and globally. So how do we get back? How, how do we get back to a point where we can do that kind of very localized suppression, if you like? Right. So the first and clearly the most important thing is to do what we actually know already, which is that we can reduce the number of cases dramatically um, just by doing what we've been doing. It's been successful in Ireland, right? We call it a lockdown or a shutdown or stay-at-home order or so on. Um, and, and Ireland has been successful at getting the number of cases dramatically down. And, and that's the first and, and most important step because if you can't do that, then clearly you can't confront the outbreak. But we can know I, we can, can I, be successful. Can I probe a little bit on that? So... Given where we are right now, and we've just had restrictions extended into March, do you think the level of restrictions that are currently currently in place, and when you look at the kind of behaviours within society, do you think that's adequate to get us back into a position as a society where we can start to deal with the virus at a localised level? And the answer is yes, we've seen the decline in recent days. It would be enough. At the same time, I would say, why not do more? Right? Because mm. the crucial thing is how much time does it take? Because everything is gated, right? If if I told you that it would take a couple of days, just stay at home. If everyone stayed at home, that would be enough. Who wouldn't do it? Right? Now, if it takes, it turns out that if everyone self-isolated, it would take two weeks. But it turns out that that's not enough, you know, because people have to go out for groceries and stuff like that. So it turns out that you need about twice that much and a little bit more. So about four to six weeks. So okay. the point is that if we make a decision, and this is a communication issue as we t- just talked about, if we tell people, look, we can drag this out for as long as we decide to drag it out. But we don't want to drag it out. We want to go back to normal. In fact, the choice should be to get to normal as absolutely fast as possible. Not to decide, hey, you know, we'll, you know, open up at the end of March or open up at the end of whatever, April or whenever it is. But to say to everybody, look, it's really, really straightforward. The sooner we get down to zero, the sooner we can open up. 
And this is what zero means. Zero means just local transmission in the community. It doesn't have to be cases. If people are also already isolated at home, they don't count, right, when they start getting infected. So there, there are a bunch of categories that don't count, like people that are in quarantine that came into the country and things like that. Um, there are categories that don't matter. But what matters is if you have cases in the community that you don't know how they started and you don't know who they were in contact with, right? Because yeah. those are the ones that are causing risk that you'll have more cases in the future. But the key is if you take, if, if, if we all decide that we want to get there, then instead of the government regulations being what's most important, Again, regulations are not unimportant, but what's most important is having everyone realize that the less risk they take of getting the disease, the more quickly we'll all be able to get back to having family occasions and going to uh, sports events and you know going out to the restaurant and the economy recovering and all of these things. So the, the, the focus of our attention should be instead of figuring out how do we now do all the things that we want, it should be going the other way. Say, how much careful can I be? Because the more careful I am, the quicker we'll really be able to get back to doing everything that we want. So can I ask you, I mean, it, when, when you talk through it at this stage, you know, 10 months into it, 11 months into it, it sounds so logical, right? And, you know, I mean, if we if we knew now what we knew back back in, you know, last March or April, you know, we we hopefully would have handled things very, very differently. Um, but why do you think still at this stage, so few countries have taken this kind of, I mean, call it what you will, hard and fast elimination strategy, zero COVID strategy? Why haven't more countries adopted it? So, there are several different conceptual barriers, and and one of them is actually an academic idea, right? So the people who study diseases that we rely on uh, in this context, a lot of them study human diseases, diseases that circle back and forth in the population. They come back year after year. That's what they tend to study in school because that's what we tend to encounter in Ireland and in the West. Whereas in places like Africa and also in China and the Far East, the experience of zoonotic outbreaks, outbreaks that start from animals, is much more common. By the way, in the West, it's more common in animal populations where there are outbreaks and then they get stopped. But the main thing is to know that we have the ability to remove to, to, to ability to stop diseases from being present. And knowing that is something that you have to learn from experience or you have to study. And in much of the West, it hasn't been studied. It hasn't been seen by experience. So it seems very difficult to imagine. That's the first one. Once you accept that diseases tend to go around and round then the idea that there's always a trade-off between the economic impacts and the health impacts becomes something of a, of, a, of a mantra, right? Because you say, hey, I got to balance this against that. And, and that creates a conflict between economic desires and public health desires. And so we have to overcome that narrative 
Because if we can eliminate the virus, then it's obvious that going back to normal, going back to open economic conditions is so much better. Taking a short time to eliminate the virus, opening up normally and having the economy open up normally, as it is in China and Australia and New Zealand and other places, uh, makes a huge, huge difference for our ability to run and to run the economy and to prosper. So this is really, uh, those are the two key challenges. Once we unwrap things and say, hey, it is possible to get to zero, it's been done, we know how to do it, then we have to also talk about the economic situation and make sure that people understand that it's, it's all roses. If we get to zero, um, then we can overcome the lack of understanding. And at this point, people have gone through several waves, ups and downs, yo-yo lockdowns, and the never-ending challenge of how do we deal with economic activity in the context of the living with a virus, which doesn't work. So now that we've seen that over and over, it's about time for people to say, hey, maybe there's a different answer. And the different answer is the elimination strategy, the zero COVID strategy. So why do you think it would be particularly suited to Ireland? So um, people talk about different reasons. Um, for me, the, actually, there are a couple of really important reasons. One is that um, there were already implemented travel restrictions between counties early on. So there was a recognition, a built-in recognition that this was an important way to combat the virus. The second is that the, despite the fact that there is a large city, the population is actually fairly distributed between the largest city and smaller cities and communities. So it's, it's harder when you have one very big center of population because then you have to break up into zones that city in a very strong way. Now, it's still probably true that it would be helpful to use neighborhoods in, in Dublin uh, to separate zones. Um, but the fact that a significant percentage of the population is not living in Dublin matters. It helps a lot right. in terms of the process of getting rid of right. the virus. And, and so those are actually the more, most important things. There's, actually, there's one other one which is super important, which is that people, you know, I mean, in different parts of the world, there is a different sense of community. And in Ireland, there's definitely a strong sense of community. And the sense of community is also local, right? There is a county level sense of belonging and community. And there's surely a national sense of belonging and community. And, and that's super important because it talks to how people care about each other. And, and it is important to realize that at the core of what we're talking about is a terrible disease. You know, I'm working with people all over the world and all of the time we have stories, you know, that one of the key people we have organizing the, the, the international community uh, has been sick recently. She's suffering from long COVID and has been suffering for months. And often she becomes uh, unable to work. And she's still pushing hard to do what she can do 
Um, and it's difficult to see. We also all want to go and help in ways that we can, but obviously it's very difficult to do that. And there are other members of our team that have lost close family members. One of the people that were working in community organizing just had uh, their family infected, cousins, aunts and uncles and grand grandmother. And it's very difficult to see the h- harsh nature of the consequences of this disease. So we're, we're, we're witnessing it, we're seeing it all the time, and, and surely the people who are in the hospital, the people who are, who are dying are not for us numbers. They're people who have families, who have people that care about them and they care about. And, and, and in Ireland, I always have the sense that many, many people have that understanding, that it's not about counting the cases, but there is a tremendous awareness that, there, that the families and friends of people who are in trouble are, are, are aware of them and, and would like to make things better. Sure, and I, I think that's probably reflective of the close-knit communities that, that we have in Ireland. Um, and I, I guess that the big concern now is that you know, as a as a society, we have pulled together, and there is a real sense of of community and purpose. But the the big concern now is that if we continue this half life or this drifting through a suppression of of various kinds, depending on the person you are, and depending on the enforcements in your area, that it feels never ending. Um, and and I think there probably is now a new uh, sentiment emerging that people go, oh, maybe we need to think about this a different way, you know, and and maybe that way might be going for something a lot harder. And so and that's why I'm very interested in your views on this. But if we were to try to articulate where we are now in terms of a strategy, um, you know, as a nation, and say maybe pick the the three main steps it might take for us to get to what might look like more of an elimination strategy or at least get to a better outcome faster what would those three steps be or how how would you articulate that as as a way as what we're not doing at the moment right so so the main thing is that we we first of all have to crush it right we have to get rid of the disease until we're down to very low numbers And then we have to take advantage, we have to contain it in different zones. And that means that we have to have travel restrictions, we have to have effective contact tracing in order to eliminate the cases locally. Um, And and, and those are things that are clear, right? This is not rocket science. And people are worried often about the ability to do this and so on. They're worried about specifics of, say, the border with the north. Um, They're worried about, you know, travel restrictions and how that will affect economic activity. But the bottom line is there's a very small overall price to pay in order to have the local behavior, the local economy, the local conditions be normal and have them normal most of the time, even if there is, again, you know, a small outbreak, right? So what you want to do is you want to contain it, and then you want to remain vigilant um, in terms of the overall action that is being taken. 
So that's, you want to, so first you get it down by crushing it. Then you contain it progressively more locally. And, and then you have to, you can call it chase it. These are terms that are being used now in Ireland. Chasing it means you have to make sure you're always watching, you're vigilant, so that you don't have new outbreaks. Okay. Now, so let's go back over it. So getting it down, we know how to do because we know how to prevent transmission between people. Once you're down, you can identify areas that don't have cases. And Galway was almost at zero even just before Christmas. If they had spent another couple of weeks, they could have opened up normally. Unfortunate that they didn't choose to, right? But it, the point is that the additional thing that you have to implement is reasonable travel restrictions. Reasonable means you don't have to have hermetically sealed borders. You just have to remove the non-essential travel and have very careful protocols for essential travel. And this has been done. Australia did it. There are ways to do it. And in Ireland, there are ways to do it that have been discussed with the, with the police. I guess they're called the Garda or Garda. I don't know exactly how to pronounce it. But the Garda. Yeah. The Garda. All right. So the Garda know how to do this. Um, and it's implementable. And it is um, uh, uh, it can be done, and and part of that is also dealing with the border of the north because everything is local. It's a county level or a community level process. Dealing with the northern border is not that different than dealing with other borders. It just may get dragged out longer, and so that's going to be a problem. But still, the benefit of doing it continues to be the benefit of doing it. And, and, and that's the big win. So, so, so that's, the, that's the discussion. And let me talk about one more thing. Yeah. There's the, been a tremendous amount of concern about shutting down international travel or putting restrictions on international yeah. travel. And, and it's something we hear a lot from our, our member companies. Yeah, and I, I get it. I mean, it's scary because we've been so, you know, and, and one of the things is it's been such a boon, right, to economic opportunity. Uh, it is important to know that the restriction doesn't have to be on freight. It doesn't have to be on goods because those can we can figure out how to transfer them safely. And it doesn't, again, have to be a limitation on travel that is essential. And that generally means long term, longer term travel where you have to do 14 day quarantines in order to set things up so that it's safe. And it's possible to have people to come into the country for shorter periods of time as long as there is no physical contact between the people who are coming in and the local community, right, over 14 days. So if you wanted to have a business meeting, you could set up someone coming into the country and sitting behind a glass partition or something like that, and you could set it up if you really wanted to do that. But people who come in and are going to interact generally we don't have any other way than using a real 14-day quarantine. No testing regime, you know, no, no testing strategy or so on will substitute. It just doesn't work. Okay. That is a price that we have to pay. But the consequences of paying that price is having, again, restaurants open, social life, and not having people going to the hospital with a severe disease um, and that's really a much better circumstance uh, in terms of what we're doing. It, we cannot compare. It's super important. 
You cannot just say, hey, well, we need to have the borders open because that's the way it was before, because that's what would be great. And it's not the same conditions. It's not the same as it was. The virus is loose in the world. We need those restrictions. And the, if we don't do it, it'll get worse and worse until we do it. That's what we've seen with the new variants. We can talk about that. There is too much of a price to pay. The advantage, however, is that if other countries also go to zero, we can open up travel with them. And that's a huge advantage. Right now, it might even be discussed with Atlantic Canada, between Atlantic Canada and Ireland. And it might be discussed with, you know, New Zealand and Australia, not so bad. And even with China, lots of people that have business dealings that could be done with Ireland. But we want, of course, to enable it to be more widespread. But the advantage of going to zero is other countries, if Ireland sets the example, other countries will also want to join. And that's super important. Sure. So looking looking forward, okay, and, and, and maybe thinking about things in, in, in a more positive way, and, and we get our we get our numbers down, we get ourselves into a much better place around containment. Um and we see ourselves in a situation where we can look to start releasing life and, and the economy again. Um, in order to get to that point, what kind of infrastructure in terms of health and testing and data and, you know, all of the things that we need as a society to to chase the virus, as you say, what kind of things should government be planning to do for that release? So the, the answer is that there are definitely several things that should be improved. One of them is contact tracing. But it's important to know that contact tracing is not so hard when you have a few cases. Mm. Right. It's I mean, you need a professional firefighting crew, right? People who are going to go in and investigate the case or whatever it is. Right. And, and by firefighting, I just mean abstractly. Right. You need people who are devoted to this and paid to attention. Um, but but it's not I mean, people have been trying to make contact tracing work with a thousand cases per day. That just never works anywhere. Right. I mean, so what you really need to do once you bring the cases down and you have 10 or 20 cases per day or fewer than that, once you get below, you know, to the point where you don't have the disease. Um, you can deal with a small outbreak, and that's okay. So that's number one. Number two, it's a really good idea to look into new methods of testing, right? So there's there's mass mm -hmm. testing you can do, and again, that's about vigilance, you know, so that we so that we catch any outbreak as early as possible. It's definitely worth doing. And then there's a lot of um, uh, um, just vigilance type things that are worth talking about. But again, none of this is rocket science. None of this is super hard. Um, and, and it's important to realize that this is an area that the business community can help with. Mm. And I, I was going to bring you on to that because that's the piece that I want to focus on as we, we kind of wrap up the discussion. You know, I th I'm interested in two elements to this. So in what you are proposing Let's talk about what the big prize for business is on that front. And then this, I suppose the second element that is, is what's the role of business 
in terms of leadership and communications and how can business contribute to this effort in a meaningful in a meaningful way look the business community should be not walking but it should be running to do this right because by going all in on this the much of the business community will be successful in a short period of time, restoring economic activity. And there may be parts of the business community that will suffer. Surely there may be some. And for that, there should be government support because this can be a very temporary time. And surely over the short period of time where things have to be locked down, right? There's a difference between having months and months and months and months of, of, of economic difficulties and having, you know, four to six weeks of a strong action followed by a few weeks to get back to normal and needing support during that time. It's a much smaller ask and it's a much more doable ask. And, and that's a very reasonable thing to say, look, you know, during this period, both the both people, right, the workers, people who have financial needs that are not being met during the time of crisis, and businesses that are going bankrupt, that are suffering under this context, should be supported. That's why we have a public good support, which is the government, to help with this. And it also can be community support, right? Mutual aid in the context of a crisis. Super important for people to watch out for each other and to, to help each other to get past this time. So there's nothing wrong with the business community saying, look, we're all in and, you know, help us get through this time. It's only a few weeks. It's not a change of the normal economic activity. It's a way of dealing with a crisis condition. And in terms of what the business community should do in order to run, not walk, use all of its capabilities, all of its talents, individually and collectively as business organizations, but also as talented individuals to help figure out what are the best ways to get there, including figure out how to limit transmission and essential services, how to do logistics for the government, how to help with data systems or whatever it is. But none of this requires a huge, you know, undertaking. It all can be done you know, rapid, you know, startup type things. We've set up a data system that could help the government. You know, it's, it's a, it's a cloud-based system that anyone can access and to put in the data and so on. And we put it together on a shoestring budget and on a, you know, in a few weeks. And, and this is the kind of thing that you need. You need to say, okay, what's the problem? What's, how do we get there? Set the, knowing what the goal is, you set up the process of achieving the goal in the rapid, effective way possible. And, and the systems that we put into place, they can be improved over time. We can come up with, you know, second generation and so on. But those are the systems that are going to also be useful in other contexts. Unfortunately, we're in a condition of risk. They'll be helpful in the future. This is not, I don't expect it, unfortunately, to be a one-time occurrence. But at the same time, the first responsibility is to deal with a current crisis and not too far to look in the future. Yanira, thank you so much. I mean, we didn't even go with the the situation around the vaccination program and what's happening there. I guess that's for, for another conversation. But I, I can I say really... two words about it. Sure. And, and also, and, and I'm going to give you the last word on communications as well. If you could wrap us up by maybe 
just giving us some examples of around the world and with people you have worked with over the last number of months, where you have seen really effective communications um, where people can identify with and have really changed behaviours and brought about better outcomes. Perfect. So the vaccine story is it's not going to be a solution for many months. It's not going to be a magic bullet. The variants that we have are, are can be more fastly transmitting. They can be more severe. That's true about the, um, it seems to be, both of those seem to be true about the UK variant that is now in Ireland. But there are also variants that are challenging the vaccine, including the South African variant. So we know there can be escape. Um, and we know they're given that at least one or two already are uh, challenging the vaccine immunity, there are likely to be many that will undermine it. And so so the vaccine is not a solution. Um, talking about communication, at least not by itself, but in conjunction, it's helpful in conjunction with other things uh, as one of the tools that we use. In terms of communication, the major piece of the communication picture is just being honest. There is nothing that should be needs to be hidden when everybody is going in the same direction in order to save lives and save the economy. There's no conflict. There's no ulterior motives. There's nothing of that. And so what we need is both for everyone to stand up, government, business, community leaders, to stand up and say, we are doing this together. We know how to do it. This is what we as a community, individually, collectively, need to do to get there. The tremendous success in doing this has been seen surely in New Zealand. And there's, there are institutions that have been professional communicators that have helped with the communication. And they can be engaged or they can be helpful in solving the problems of communication in Ireland or helping with the communication in Ireland. This is a communication surely is a professionally sophisticated responsibility. I can say, however, that I have never seen better communicators than my experience with the people in Ireland. It has been an amazing experience for me to collaborate with the groups, in, with the people in Ireland, with the ISAG group, or with other people that I know there, because the poetic discourse and the knowledge of how to communicate has been unbelievably great. And I don't think that I need to tell people in Ireland how to communicate. I think once it's clear what the objective is, once it's clear that we're all in this together, I have no doubt that the communication will be successful, that the people will understand, that people will be on board, and that there will be a successful outcome. Yanir Baryam, thank you very much. Thank you. IBEC, the voice of Irish business. A really fascinating conversation there with Yanir Baryam and, of course, a huge amount of content in it, a lot of food for thought, a lot to consider. Siobhan Masterson, Head of Corporate Affairs at IBEC, is still with us here. Siobhan, really enjoyable conversation. What did you take from it? What are some of the things that you think we should be left with? Yeah, I mean, as you said, Patrick, a huge amount of areas covered in this interview, and we didn't even get to the the vaccination strategy in any substance, uh, or indeed things like, you know, uh, data and privacy issues, which are, are, are very key to this debate. 
But maybe just to try to hone in on a couple of, of con- key considerations from the interview. I guess for me, there were two specific areas. First of all, is what we're currently doing in terms of restrictions and enforcements enough to bring about the reduction in numbers as quickly as possible, right? So that we can release society and the economy again. Um, and, and that's, I suppose, the the immediate issue. Um, but then the other issue is around the release strategy. And so once we have suppressed the numbers, how do we go about releasing society and the economy again, knowing, you know, that we've we've learned mistakes in the past? Um, and this raises fundamental issues around what our policies are on international travel restrictions, quarantine measures and enforcements, and looks at various different models, which Janir would have drawn on as part of the, the interview. However, I think the one thing that is abundantly clear and is indisputable uh, across society and the economy is this whole area of test, track and trace infrastructure. We must build a resilient, rock solid test, track and trace infrastructure. And we must invest in localised teams to implement it. And if we knew that was going to be in place at the point of release from this current wave of restrictions, we would know that we would have some hope of chasing, crushing, you know, catching, crushing those words that yeah, that Janir used, which I really liked mm. and really resonated with me uh, and and bringing a, a kind of a psychological boost to the nation, which I think is needed, you know, with everything else and would give us a common purpose and goal to be able to live until, as I said earlier, we get this ma- mass vaccination in place. And I guess that's the kind of that's the key takeaway from this interview uh, for me. Well, Siobhan, thank you very much for your insights on that. Um, I'm no doubt we are going to be speaking about this in the next uh, one or several episodes of IBEC Voices. No doubt, Patrick. (laughs) Well, listen, look after yourself. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of IBEC Voices. We will be back soon, of course, with another. As ever, if you like it, please do rate it, review it, follow us if you're on Spotify, subscribe if you're on Apple. It does help other people to find us. And as ever, if you would like more information on IBEC, the campaigns, the work being done by IBEC, just check out IBEC.ie. Until the next time, take care.